How has the drug war failed? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Trevor Burse. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Trevor Burris. Trevor is a research fellow in the Cato Institute's Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies and editor-in-chief of the Cato Supreme Court Review. His academic work has appeared in journals such as the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy, and his popular writing has appeared in publications like the Washington Post and the New York Times. He's also one of the hosts of the Free Thoughts podcast on libertarianism.org. His research interests include constitutional law, civil and criminal law, legal and political philosophy, legal history, and the interface between science and public policy. Today, I'm speaking with him in person in Montreal, and he's in town for a talk he's giving for the ILS at McGill that will be covering this topic. Trevor, welcome to The Curious Task. Thanks so much for having me. In each episode, we start with a question and go wherever the conversation takes us. So let's kick it right off. I'll pass it right to you. How has the drug war failed? Well, it's interesting to wonder how what it would look like if it would succeed. I guess for many drug wars, the, a successful drug war would have no one taking drugs, possibly, uh, depending on who you're talking to, or no one taking any of the illicit drugs that are prohibited. Right. Uh, and probably for them, it would mean that no one would be incarcerated for trying to take those because people wouldn't want to take them anyway, part of the puritanical element of the drug war. And it's interesting because if that were the case – if we had reached a moment where people weren't smoking marijuana, although oh, Canada now has uh, has moved into light on that one, but right. weren't doing uh, hard, quote unquote, hard drugs like heroin and cocaine and methamphetamine and, and things like this, uh, that that would be a better world. Uh, I don't necessarily agree with that sentiment. Um, this is not to say that I think you should take drugs, but I think it's important to realize that for the vast majority of people who take all the drugs, even the quote unquote really bad ones, most of them receive pleasure out of it right. uh, and don't use them problematically. And so actually fewer people taking those drugs in a non-problematic way is also a huge failure uh, if, if the drug were to, were to have succeeded. Uh, the, the analogy, of course, would be alcohol. Like what is the major cost of if alcohol were prohibited? like it was in America during the 20s, and if it were successfully prohibited, let's say most people didn't drink or no one drank, what would be the main cost of that? Mm-hmm. Uh, it would be that drinking is pleasurable. Right. And it would be all the little the individual instances where I say, I had a really good night because we had some good drinks, we had some good libations. Uh, you'd have dry weddings rather than, rather than wet weddings, which we all know which ones are more fun. Uh, you wouldn't have American football tailgating and things like this. Those would be the main costs of, of prohibiting alcohol. So going back to your original question, how has the drug war failed? Well, it's no surprise that you know the drugs won the drug war. I think everyone understands that this is true. Um, now, it's important to point out, too, that a lot of times libertarians and, and people who are against the drug war, eh, we make arguments that say that uh, the drug war doesn't do anything. If you want drugs, you can get them. Um, you know, There's no real effect for having the drug war. That's not exactly true. Uh, the drug war does make drugs harder to come by, and it does keep people, some people from taking drugs uh, on the margins, of course. So there, there are successes to the drug war in that sense. But at what cost? Uh, what cost have these successes come? And I mentioned one of them, that people aren't able to do drugs in a responsible and pleasurable fashion. 
But of course, when you fight a thing like the drug war, you're faced with this basic problem from a criminal justice standpoint, from a demand standpoint. Uh, one of the basic problems is that when the crime is purportedly committed against yourself, so we, most of the time we talk about crimes. I rob you, I kill you, I assault you. There's a, vic there's a victim. And most of the time when crimes are committed, victims feel victimized. And so they call the police, the constabulary. They call someone and say, hey, I am a victim of a crime. Please come and investigate this crime and get the guy who did it. Right. Um, if, you, if you are both the victim and the perpetrator of the crime – by putting drugs into your own body, then you've created a totally different situation where it says, it says uh, according to other people, you are the victim of a crime that you committed against yourself. Uh, and you're not going to call the police and say, I need to be investigated about this crime that I've been victimized on of myself. And so the police have to do something to figure out how to get, how to identify victims and, and pursue drugs when the victims themselves, the purported victims, will not call the police or assist in that. Right. And what you get from that is the expected civil liberties violations of the drug war. If the victims are not going to call us to ask us to investigate, we're going to do mandatory drug testing. We're going to, uh, to search them at airports. Uh, we're going to break down their houses and search for drugs. Those are the kind of things that you would expect upon the drug war being fought, uh, even successfully, mm. as long as everyone is not going to go along with not taking these drugs that some people at some time in the past decided you shouldn't take. So there's a, there's a lot there to unpack, and I think that's a great way to just jump right in. So let's drill down into basically take what you said into sections and go deeper. So before we talk about the drug war itself, I want to talk a bit about the sort of the history of the pre-drug war America, right? There was a major law called the Harrison Narcotics Tax Act of 1914, which you discuss in your article, Locked Up and Loaded. People can go find that online. But before that, what did it sort of look like in America? There obviously wasn't people busting down doors. These things were just legal. Maybe go into that. Well, there, there have always been different laws at different times in Anglo-American history prohibiting different substances. There, there have been wars on tobacco. Uh, even in the 17th century, you had uh, King James actually wrote a, a thing about how much tobacco was horrible. Uh, <laughs> you had problems with caffeine uh, at different times during the Enlightenment. Sometimes it's because after the advent of coffee, people started meeting together in coffee shops. And sometimes right. they were talking about subversive things like individual rights and why the king didn't have absolute power over them. So it's that damn coffee that's the problem. Exactly. People going nuts. Exactly. Of course, alcohol is always in America. Alcohol has always had an interesting relationship. Uh, we, grew, we grew up being pretty heavy drinkers. Um, and the 1820s, 1830s, for example, like the alcohol consumption was extremely high. But then you saw uh, sort of the growth of prohibition movements in the individual states uh, starting in the mid-19th century. But in terms of sort of, quote unquote, the traditional illegal drugs, um, opium has a long history in the Far East. And we know about the opium wars with, with China and the UK when in England uh, and has a long history and it does sort of have come from the Far East. And it's the same is true here in Canada, actually, that when the Chinese immigrants started coming here in the middle of the 19th century, they brought opium with them. Uh, and and very similar time frame for Canada when the opium laws were passed, which is the first one was 1908 here in Canada, uh, similar time period, because actually in 1909, before the Harrison Narcotics Act, as you pointed out, uh, there was an opium uh, importation prohibition in the United States. Opium has, there's a bunch of things we can say about it. It's it's long been known to be used. It was used in the late 19th century by doctors, and it was one of the few things that doctors had in their their medical bag that was that did anything. 
Hmm. If you think about the state of medicine, I mean, we're talking about the advent of the germ theory of disease, you know, starting right. in the mid, mid, late 19th century. So one of the few things that did anything had any noticeable effect because they were giving things like, you know, uh, things that we consider herbal remedies now almost uh, and saying, oh, you'll use this to treat these things. But opium had some pronounced effects. Obviously, it seemed to alleviate symptoms. And just because it makes some people feel better, uh, you often give them for cough syrup, which it still is used and has a derivative like codeine in some cough syrups. Mm -hmm. uh, it's also... Uh, very good for diarrhea. It creates constipation. Uh, so some of the major elements you could think of with water supplies and food of the time, diarrhea right, was right. quite common. So opium was one of the few things that actually did anything. Um, there was notice. There was some notice taken that people became habituated to opium. At that time, they would have called them habitués. In America, we have this idea that uh, the the soldier sickness that there was a lot of of post Civil War soldiers addicted to opium, and there were probably some, and there was a spike in addiction to some degree. It's hard to tell. We don't have a lot of good data of the late nineteenth century, but because doctors were so freely giving opium, there was there were definitely some sort of concern about addiction starting in the eighteen nineties, first decade of the twentieth century, and then of course they started actually getting some medicines that that did thing that also worked other than opium. And became aware of this and so it sort of changed. You could also go to the stores before the first of all, the 1906 Pure Food and Drug Act, of which there's a very close contemporary Canadian analog to that, which required labeling. Uh, and you could get opium in various soothing syrups. They were called like Mrs. Winslow's soothing syrup. Sometimes it was even given to children to. to keep them from crying. Right. Um, and there were many people who were taking laudanum, which is a mixture of opium and alcohol usually. Uh, and they were they were they were ad addicted in some sense, although we can talk about what the meaning of that is. They were chemically dependent in some sense. Mm -hmm. And then in 1914, with the first major federal drug law, they basically taxed and banned opium and cocaine. Um, cocaine is a little bit of a different story, uh, but they taxed they taxed it and essentially banned it, and it becomes a very complex story because they wanted to preserve it for doctors to prescribe, but it was it was became a very controversial thing in the next fifteen years about what doctors could legitimately prescribe opium for. If an addict came to your office and said, I, if I don't get opium every day, I crawl out of my skin, and the doctor gives them opium, is that a legitimate medical purpose? And of course, and then you have essentially a ban on opium and heroin, which is invented and kind of comes out in 1898 and is actually a brand name uh, from the Bear Company. Um, at a lot of different times, some of these were claimed to be less addictive than they ended up being. Uh, but what you did have, what happened in 1914, and even beforehand with some of the Chinese-based laws, which was smoking opium, is you had a lot of people smoking opium, many of them addicted. They were smoking opium in these very you know, morally suspect places, opium dens, where women would go and have their morality challenged and all these kind of things. So you see local laws in United States, per states, California, Nevada, banning smoking opium, but not banning other types of opium, which okay. is a, which is a trend that we see throughout the drug war, that there's some ways of taking a given drug that are okay, but other ways that are taking the same drug that are not okay. Uh, we even see that sometimes with alcohol, doing shots versus having beer, having a beer is a different. Uh, but so we, we that's, what, that's sort of the state of opium by 1914. Uh, what you get from the sort of removal of these tinctures and over-the-counter products, shelf, shelf products with opium is a bunch of people who are chemically dependent upon opium suddenly have to go somewhere else to find because one thing about the drug drug addiction, drug chemical dependence is that you can't just snap your fingers and stop being 
addicted, right. chemically dependent. So it doesn't matter. The laws change. Uh, you can, you know, if anyone is a smoker or vapor, uh, I, I, I vape. If tomorrow they just made them all disappear, I wouldn't. It wouldn't eliminate the cravings that I would have for vaping, and I, I might go out and try and find something on the black market. Uh, for marijuana in the United States, about the same thing. Canada, uh, 1923, I believe, is when Canada really got into marijuana prohibition. Uh, some states got into marijuana prohibition around that time, but but there's a federal law in 1937 called the Marijuana Tax Act. And subsequent to that, we can just sort of put together different things are added at different time, methamphetamine, LSD in the 60s, all these sort of things. It's, we get to the nature of kind of drugs that are that are banned. But bef- before the banning of, of drugs, uh, you had addicts, you had some you had you people using it for pleasurable purposes of whatever drug you're talking about uh no incarceration no drug raids uh and the ability to receive treatment or pursue treatment if if addiction was part of the problem um and none of these sort of attendant problems you had probably higher drug use too mm-hmm. almost assuredly uh but again that's not necessarily a bad thing if, unless you view all sort of alteration of your consciousness is somehow necessarily a bad thing. No, and I think that's an excellent preface to what's going to be my follow-up to that. So you set the stage very nicely. So let's get into how the drug war started. Because like you said, we're talking about bits and pieces of bans and different laws and tax acts coming in. Chat me up about the drug war itself, how it started, even discuss key political figures that may have been involved leading the charge. Go ahead. Let, let's hear about how that's really got started. It's it's important for the, the nature of the concept of a drug war. Um, it really starts being used more prominently than that language in the late 60s, 70s with, with Richard Nixon. But that that was not the beginning of the drug war. Um, there are many ways you could approach a quote-unquote problematic use of certain drugs. You could treat people as human beings and say, you know, you can have these drugs if you want. Uh, they can be used responsibly, uh, but they also have dangers to them. And if you do get into a situation where this is dangerous, then here are some ways we can help you out, uh, which is not to put you in a cage. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what we do with alcohol. Uh, no one thinks that uh, their alcohol doesn't have immense social costs right, to it. Right. Uh, it also has social benefits, uh, harder to quantify, but definitely social benefits. Um, it has immense social costs. Uh but when drunk driving became, say, a, a noticeable issue in the 80s, um, you had mothers against drunk driving, for example. Like, you didn't have a return to prohibitionism. It wasn't – drunk driving is a problem, therefore prohibition, right? And that the problem was was notably, according to these groups, as you're saying, what you can do when you're drunk. It's the driving drunk that's the problem. Some people, of course, would say it's the, the drinking that's the problem ultimately. But, but the main part of the conversation was around driving drunk, not that guy's drinking alcohol, let's go – into exactly. prohibition, like you were saying. And as I often say, the, the the sort of fundamental question at the heart of the drug war is uh, why do alcoholics get treatment and heroin addicts get cages? Right. And what sort of thing would make that happen? Because it's not – it's it should strike people as odd. Um, now, you might be thinking, oh, heroin is really bad and and, and – I mean, there are many things that are very bad about heroin. We, we have a, a huge overdose crisis in America in particular. We can get into what that what, what is causing that. Um, but again, like heroin, like all drugs, we, we can basically say that But 80% of the users are not problematic users of heroin, just like 80% of users of alcohol are not problematic users of alcohol. The 20% is always the, the case with almost anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, 20% of alcohol drinkers drink 
80% of the alcohol, flip it around, like heavy drinkers, you know, in terms of total alcohol consumption, the good, the good it's, old 80-20, right? Yeah, it's not equally distributed. And 20% of heroin users uh, take 80% of the heroin uh, and, they're, and they're problematic users. But how do we get to the point that they're that they're in cages, that we say, well, this is the best way to do it? Well, you have to do, have a few things. You have to moralize heroin use in a way that we didn't with with alcohol with alcohol use and we now don't with with cannabis use um, so the moralization so the the three prongs of how the drug war sort of created is it first begins with perception of the drug mm-hmm. so the question is what does this drug do and uh, and this is perception not reality necessarily but the perception of what the drug does uh, the second prong is perception of the drug user what type of person particularly focusing on race and class to some extent, mm-hmm. uh, uses this drug. Uh, and then third is the dehumanization of the drug user. Um, dehumanizing drug users is the only way we get to the point that believing that cages for heroin users is is just and somehow okay because they're sort of subhuman. And if you follow drug warrior rhetoric, right. especially in the 80s, it's full of completely dehumanizing language. So you can take almost any given drug and say, well, how do we get there? Uh, you ask about the political figures beforehand. Actually, start with marijuana, political figures in particular. So so the big figure with a lot of these is a guy in America, is a guy named Harry J. Anslinger, uh, who was uh, commissioner of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics from 1930 to 1962. And he's probably the most – one of the most important people in world history because he helped export America's drug war too because that's a big part of this on a world level is that mm-hmm. America used uh, – I mean, some countries went for the drug war themselves, but we also used our trading power and, and all of our sort of imperial power to sort of force other countries to fight the drug war on the same level we we did. Right. And Harry Anslinger was a part of that too. But Harry Anslinger was really, really hated drugs and he really, really hated drug users of a certain type. Um, and he was really racist, like, like, the kind of person that even people in the 30s would be like, that guy is really racist. Like that, yeah. That's like how – everyone's kind of racist, but well, that guy's like a little bit too right, racist, yeah. right? Like people in the 30s are saying, wait, <laughs> yeah, that guy's yeah, really that racist. that guy's really racist, yeah. He believed that cocaine, marijuana, uh, heroin use uh, was, was, for example, we see – a New York Times article you can look up online. Ne- ne- Negro fiends are the new uh, cocaine. Negro cocaine fiends are the new Southern menace. Mm. Uh, from the New York Times, I think in 1919, telling the story about how uh, particularly black people in America were doing cocaine, and uh, it was making them not act according to their their proper role in society, being subservient to whites. Uh, probably making them go after white women because you can pretty much write partially a history of America about things that people were afraid of happening to white women. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's like a lot of laws that are based on that. And then when they did the cocaine, they became unkillable. Uh, this this is a very common uh, trope in drug scares is that something right. about this drug makes you superhumanly strong and almost unkillable. Every drug law enforcement talks about, they will say all the other drugs are X, Y, and Z, but this one. Yes, exactly. They just happen to talk about each one as exactly. the one. Yeah. So so that was with with African Americans for cocaine. Opium was obviously Chinese. Harry Anslinger didn't like either of these people. He really hated marijuana though. Not seemingly initially, but by the mid 30s, he got really against marijuana. 
And with William Randolph Hearst, who ran um, the Hearst Empire of newspapers, which is kind of like the Fox News of the day, mm -hmm. extremely conservative uh, newspapers all around the country, they really went against marijuana. And they specifically called it marijuana um, for those for purposes because a lot of people would not have known what marijuana was if you used the the Spanish sounding marijuana like kind of name. Uh, and because cannabis was well known, it was it was it was in the you know it was one of these things in the doctor's bag, right? With opium tincture of cannabis or something like this was used throughout. But marijuana getting associated with Mexicans gets some it's more nefarious connotation for in a racially tinged con like society. So Anslinger believes that marijuana it basically makes people completely crazy and it's responsible for a significant amount of crime. Um, at one point, he he really latches on to the story of a guy named Victor Licata in Florida, and it was a guy who came home and murdered his whole family with an axe. Um, and at some point, it became the idea that he was on marijuana. That's what he did. He he was on marijuana and made him go completely crazy. He was Mexican, and uh, and this is the kind of thing that the drug does. He testified to that to Congress in 1937 when they when they passed the first federal marijuana law. Um, he also jazz musicians. He was very confused about how jazz musicians would would t take this marijuana and and their their music. Only could make sense if you were on marijuana, which I mean, look, I mean, we could say fair, whatever, sure. But like, he had this idea that marijuana so altered your perception of time that that it made all these sort of things like that, like that would sound horrible to anyone else, sound good. And he had it out, especially for black jazz musicians. He had agents basically working undercover to surveil different jazz musicians, in particular Billie Holiday, who was harassed by the Federal Bureau of Narcotics for for really over a decade. And this goes back to something you were saying before, is you'll notice that all of these stories always attach themselves to a certain group or a minority yes. group or things like that. I don't, you That's haven't said one two. thing. That's prong two right. of the drug war. Right. You haven't said one thing that hasn't so, related so to that. So yeah, to fill in what I had said previously with marijuana. So first prong of the drug war is perception of the drug. Well, Harry Anslinger does a lot of work to say you should perceive the drug as being uh, absolutely crime-inducing, insanity-inducing, mania-inducing. When it came to cocaine, uh, you should it makes black people act out of turn and unkillable. Uh, opium will lure white women into the opium dens or will make people addicts for life, these kind of things. And everyone who uses opium will become addicted. That's uh, it's like, well, opium there definitely creates addicts, just like alcohol does. Uh, but everyone, with the idea that if you take opium or heroin once, you're, you're kind of all bets are off. You're just going to be a heroin addict for the rest of your life. I learned that in D.A.R.E., which is an American uh, program called Drug Abuse Resistance Education, part of the sort of Reagan era stuff. And I, I, I was convinced that if you did heroin once, you would, it would, it would be, it would be chemically dependent for life. Well, with some of that propaganda, maybe marijuana, <laughs> not even once, right? Yes. <laughs> so it's not even just about the heroin. And then perception of the drug user. So which, what, who is using this? Uh, black people, Mexicans, jazz musicians, uh, Asians. And then, of course, the dehumanization of this, that this is not just a normal intoxicant. Uh, this is di very different. And there's sort of a, a, a midterm and long term effect of that dehumanization, too. Right. Like in the sense that at the beginning, it says, well, you know, black people doing cocaine 
X, Y, and Z happens, after a while, it basically becomes people's perception in their head, well, black people do cocaine. Yes. And, I, you know, sometimes, I mean, there was probably truth to the fact that Chinese were bringing and doing more opium in the 1870s, for example. Uh, marijuana did seem to come to prominence earlier in the southern United States coming over from Mexico than it had. And Mexico has a long history with, with marijuana, going with the stereotype, I guess. Interestingly enough, that's where probably the term roach comes from. So... If you're familiar with La Cucaracha, um, the, that was a song that was sung during the Mexican Civil War in the in the 19-teens and uh, with some of their soldiers who were called, even in Pancho Villa's army, who were called roaches, mm. uh, who, were, who would just march while purportedly smoking marijuana. And actually in La Cucaracha, the original original words are something like, La Cucaracha, La Cucaracha, ya no puede caminar porque me falta porque no tiene marijuana para fumar, which is La Cucaracha, I can't walk because I don't have marijuana to smoke. Hmm. Uh, you can you can go and look for a old Speedy Gonzalez cartoon where he actually sings that in the entirety. The full, nice. Yes. <laughs> like on YouTube, in the background, you can hear him singing La Cucaracha and at the very end, he's like, marijuana para fumar. Yeah, but right. th that's as you. So going back to what you're saying, that this is the sort of milieu around this. So by 19, so 1955, if marijuana was sort of a drug coming over the border, and people who had never heard of it before maybe would be enticed by it. By the 50s, it's it's already demonized enough, and the penalties in in Canada too. The penalties were unbelievably harsh. I mean, people would be really shot. Uh, the Bo the Boggs Act in 1952, I believe, uh, had uh, eight, eight years in prison for the second second offense. So you could so just two two marijuana cigarettes could give you eight years in prison. So you just have incredibly harsh penalties for this. Uh, and of course, by that time, if you think of 50s American society, marijuana is super exotic. Uh, maybe in New York, if you knew some jazz musicians or something, but if you lived in Des Moines, you weren't you probably if oh you you would go oh I've heard that guy smokes marijuana mm -hmm. right in this strange way and that and it would be almost as bad as saying this this guy smoke, does heroin today right right um, what we've done with marijuana is and I'm from Colorado so so is the sort of first state on this is that you the real genesis the real source of why marijuana policy has changed and is sort of sweeping the world in Canada is is, is obviously too. Is the the slow humanization of marijuana users? I mean, I Cato, right, where right. I work for the for Cato Institute, we've written about why marijuana prohibition is bad for a variety of reasons since we opened our doors in 1977. But if we could have we we could have devoted our entire resources to just talking about marijuana prohibition as a bad policy, but nothing was actually going to change until people started perceiving marijuana smokers as not nascent psychopaths and sort of unredeemable right. drug users. And that the drug and, is, and, is their life. Like that's what yeah, they are. With right? the way we perceive of, of heroin users now, by the way, that's the way you're thinking, Mr. Listener, Mrs. Listener, right now about heroin users uh, is the way people thought about marijuana users 40 years ago. Um, the humanizing forces for marijuana users were things like Cheech and Chong movies. Cheech and Chong movies and, and half-baked and, the, and right. all this sort of idea that smoking marijuana is funny. It's not that big of a deal. Uh, and then you start maybe meeting someone who smokes marijuana. You start saying, well, my neighbor smokes marijuana and he's not a psychopath. It's kind of like the coming out movement for homosexuality. It's like in 1955, like I don't know any of those homosexuals. They must all be deviants. And then maybe – you know, you probably do, but they wouldn't tell you. Right. Uh, and then maybe by 1970, after Stonewall, people were like, well, I met one of those homosexuals. And 
And he seemed like a pretty good guy. And by 1980, it's like, well, no, there no there's nothing wrong. You know, th that's how you grow mm -hmm. a movement against you know the, the horrible criminalization of homosexual activity. Same thing happened, you know, with 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 drug users. It's like, oh, I met one of those marijuana users, and he wasn't that bad. He had a good job, and uh, you know, he was a lawyer, and apparently he just came home and smoked marijuana. And by 1980, you had you have more of a humor based around marijuana use, and then and then Snoop Dogg and Rat. All this stuff ends up being the kind of forces that say, wow, marijuana users are human beings. Right. We should no longer prohibit marijuana. That needs to happen with every other drug, but we 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 got some, you know, important steps with marijuana. And shifting gears a little bit before we take the break, we talked a lot about the human consequences. In your uh, your article online, Locked Up and Loaded, you also talk about the consequences of the drug war that some people might not think about directly on the drugs themselves. You talked about um impure drugs and how drugs become stronger. So before we we take the break. Maybe you can explain both of those and how that happens and the impacts of that. Oh, it's actually one of the most massively important things to understand about prohibition. Uh, we all know about the impure drugs. I think everyone understands that if you're buying from a you know a non-reputable source from someone on the street with the incentive because they don't they don't have a brand to protect, they don't have any sort of legal liability. They're not handing out business. They're cards. not handing out business cards. I mean, now that being said, you know, experienced dealers do develop reputations mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, that's even even in a black market or maybe especially in the black market is more necessary for word of mouth reputations right of course otherwise the black market can function without yes. that kind of reputation Precisely. But, but i see what you're saying but you still you're still lacking a bunch of things and 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 and, and so you adulterate the drugs with various things um in heroin for example it's obviously like condensed milk and baby powder and a bunch of other things to, to cut the heroin um the more important thing when it comes to the drug war is is what's what you alluded to is the iron law prohibition which is the drug war prohibition makes drugs stronger it's not the there are many things it does but this is this is important because most people when they think about taking away the drug war let's just say tomorrow we will legalize everything they think that the way that people use drugs now is like is the the normal way of doing it as opposed to the product of prohibition um and so take take heroin users. So it, like, I ask students this often if they've ever tried to smuggle alcohol into a football game, like a college football game. Right. And it's, you know, okay, some people have. And you say, okay, did you did you bring a flask with high potency uh, whiskey or something, or did you try and bring a twelve pack? Right. right? Yeah. And they say, oh, well, I brought the flask. And it's like, okay, well, that 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 exact same thing happens in the drug war. Um, there are many ways of using opium uh, that are, are lower concentration, lower purity opiums, and ones that, you know, if you had innovation in drug markets, could be very helpful, lollipops or patches or whatever, nasal sprays, whatever. But when prohibition comes in, you only, you get the highest potency version of this. So you get heroin. Same thing happened in America during alcohol prohibition. Uh, beer and wine were the most popular drinks in America the day before we prohibited alcohol. Mm. And then the day after we we took away alcohol prohibition, the most popular drinks in America were again beer and wine. Right. Speakeasies but, weren't known for light beer. No. Well, because well, beer beer went up about, about 700% um, after prohibition. And spirits went up about 240%, best we can figure out. So you're trying to run a speakeasy. You get a, you get a small little you know cask of, of high potency alcohol right. and you start make, mixing these drinks. 
Um, and but it's not a demand-driven phenomenon, as demonstrated by the fact that as soon as alcohol prohibition ends, they're back to beer and wine, right? But when it comes to opiates, there is a tolerance development. There's a bunch of stuff, but the moment that the Harris Narcotics Act came in, you had a bunch of low-potency opiates that people were addicted to. Actually, a lot of them were middle-aged white women who had to drink a little bit of the soothing syrup before going to bed. Uh, those are now gone. And all that's left is heroin. Uh, so you've created or morphine and heroin and increasingly just heroin. So you've created a situation where you can do opium in a variety of ways, but the only thing left is, is heroin. Now, this is more dangerous for a variety of reasons, especially because opiates do have an overdose risk uh, based on their potency, and they are particularly interesting in that regard. Um, so what you what you kind of do in prohibition is you make all, a bar that only serves Everclear. Uh, which is an American. I don't know if you know what Everclear is. It's an American spirit that's that's basically pure alcohol. Mm -hmm. It's one ninety proof. It's 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 just it's just horrible. I mean, it's you could run a car off of it. <laughs> um, so, but like that's all the bar has. Mm -hmm. Um, and so now you've increased problematic drug use, increased the possibility of addiction and other types of, of, of physical harm that comes from using those drugs. And the, the best example of that now in America is the fentanyl crisis. Right. F fentanyl's presence in the opium market and the heroin market, which has accounted for about 39,000 deaths last year. We don't have the numbers for 2019 yet, but fentanyl is is terrifyingly potent. Uh, it's about it's – it's about – in one gram of of fentanyl, there are between three and five hundred lethal doses. Uh, one gram, so the size of a paperclip. Wow. Uh, fentanyl is two to five milligrams for a lethal dose, depending on a variety of things. Uh, if you've ever worked in, in a, if you've ever worked in medicine in some way, it's one of the only drugs that's ever that's ever given in what's called mics, which are micrograms, in which there's a thousand micrograms in a milligram. Well, 500 mics would be half a milligram. But it's it's so potent that if you've ever been a nurse, people just say, hey, I need 500 mics to room, you know, 2,800. And um, that they already know it's it's fentanyl because nothing else would be denominated in something so shockingly low. Right. So when you take when when fentanyl is coming in, you can put you can just take an envelope. This is like smuggling into the football game again. Gets tons of fentanyl into the country, but you don't know if it's fentanyl is in your heroin supply. If it's ten percent fentanyl, ninety percent heroin, that that still is enough that if you shoot the 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 dosage you usually get, it could kill you. Especially if you combine it with things like alcohol, um, and that's that's the main source of of these deaths uh, from opiates. And so it's entirely a product of of the prohibition, and there's no way to stop it. I mean, if you want to save lives in America tomorrow, you must legalize heroin immediately mm -hmm. and give it some possibility, not decriminalize, because that's only sort of one part of, of the equation. You need to give possibility of access to save heroin, um, and, and we can save tens of thousands of lives tomorrow. Right. Uh, we do not have the manpower, the technology to figure out where the fentanyl is or stop it. We have we have no ability to do that. And the fentanyl is not a demand-driven function. It is a supply-driven function of the iron law prohibition. Right. And it's interesting how here we get into sort of like what I'll call like the political cycles of the drug war rhetoric, right? We have, oh, the reason why we need to throw money, more money at this drug war is the drugs are stronger. But yes. in reality, the drug war is making the drugs stronger. Precisely. And that's a great place to take a break. So we'll do that right now. Everyone, you're listening to The Curious Task. I'm talking with Trevor Burse. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. 
feel free to send questions and feedback to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. A special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Liam O'Brien, Peter Jaworski, and Randy T. Simmons. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at CuriousTaskILS, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. I'm talking here with Trevor Burris. Trevor, before uh, the break, we set the stage for what was America looked like pre-drug war. We talked about the drug war itself, the two prongs that you pointed out. We focused on the human consequences of the drug war. We focused on the consequences on the drugs themselves. Uh, something you talked about at the very beginning in your initial answer, something I'd like to drill a little bit more into. You talked about when the victims, users of drugs, addicts, ultimately become the same thing as criminals, that is, they are the same person. That's a that's a lot different. You touched on it, but I'd like you to get into that a bit more. Like, so how is that different? Uh, use the metaphor. I think, uh, uh, you know, if, if you're the victim of a robbery and you call the cops, that's that's one sort of dynamic. But if if the victim ends up being the criminal, we're in a whole different world. You touched on it. Let's get deeper into that. Well, we've seen in America it's where it's it's more prominent due to a variety of things. There's a puritanical sort of backbone to America, um, and a non reticence of using. Uh, police in particular in a really horrible fashion but on the so on this question of when the victim is not reporting to the police they have to do something to get evidence and what we've seen there is sort of this massive civil liberties violation problem and also the attempt to fight the drug war in sort of different ways novel ways uh one one for example in the united states is called civil forfeiture so the idea that is that we need to take money from the drug dealers. So let's say you wanted to fight the drug war, okay? Let's imagine what you would do. You would probably try and convince people not to do drugs, <clears throat> and that's and that's uh, one thing that I grew up with with you know, education programs. Do. So you're going to eliminate the demand side by saying just say no and have all these scare stories about drug taking. That could be difficult too because if you over – what we've seen with the D.A.R.E. program, which I mentioned previously um, – what we what we've seen is that if you did dare, you're probably a little bit more likely to do drugs. Uh, so if you went through this entire program propaganda, that you actually a few papers have come out that said overall you're probably more likely to do drugs. And I think there might be some causal reasons for that. One is that when the government lies about how bad drugs are, and then you actually end up taking a drug or seeing someone uh, using a drug of a certain sort, you're like, well, what else are they lying about? Right. Uh, so like, what they lied about marijuana for a very long time, and then maybe in college you saw someone smoking marijuana, and you were afraid because you're like, well, I've heard it turns you into a maniac, and then you're like no it just makes you want to grow nose hair and listen to bob marley records like like that okay well what else is the government lying about a heroin cocaine meth so so one thing you try and do is, is take away demand for drugs and then also try to take away the supply for drugs and there's a few ways of doing that uh one is to try and go after drug dealers which is mostly what the law enforcement does but of course they're very sophisticated. There's a lot of money involved. And so they're working in sort of different ways. And so you're trying to get after them. And there was an idea in the 80s that we would take away the assets of drug of drug dealers. And so we're going to find, you know, if we find a large amount of money or let's say like a, a boat or a car and we that we suspect is either the product of criminal activity um, or it's connected to criminal activity in some sense, we're going to take that asset and you then have the ability to try and prove it to be innocent. Um, and if you can't prove it to be innocent, then 
you lose it eventually to the state. How do, let me just say how this actually plays out. So the idea of going after the drug dealers and take away their money, but here's how it plays out in practice. So someone's driving down the road and they've taken out maybe $10,000 in cash uh, so they can go and put a down payment on a car or give it to someone or something like this. They get pulled over. The cops say, do you have any you know, large amounts of cash in the car? Or they see maybe the cash in the car and the cops then can say, well, I smell marijuana. Like they can, all, they can just say that. I mean, maybe they're lying. Maybe they're not. Um, they're smelling the air freshener. They're smelling they're- the air freshener. Or they can get a dog, which is a magical probable cause machine because the dog, the dog will always alert if they're pretty much if the cop wants it to alert. And so then they they search the car and they say, well, we found this large amount of cash. And now because we quote unquote smelled marijuana, that cash is presumed to be the product of illegal drug use or dealing or connected somehow to drug dealing. And we are now going to take that cash. And you have to prove that it is not the product of drugs of, of a crime or, 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 or somehow connected to the crime. And so now the, now the property is guilty. Um, and, and you have to prove this thing that's very difficult to prove because unlike in, you know, criminal justice trials where the, the government is supposed to prove you guilty, you're not supposed to prove yourself innocent. Right. So very rarely is that even possible. And so generally, so then the money eventually goes to the cops and sometimes it goes actually to the cops, uh, that they actually take that, get that $10,000 and they can buy new cars with it or a margarita machine. In one case, we actually, there was actually a margarita machine purchased for the department with money seized from, from purported drug crimes money going to other substances which are legal that you can exactly. of course enjoy exactly and these are just the kind of things that end up happening when you're fighting a war that is on with the victimless crimes um the way we way i would think of it um you also have extreme erosion of the rights against for the sort of fourth amendment rights so so your rights against search and seizure without probable cause you've seen extreme erosion in that all to fight the drug war. So one, you, you mentioned no knock raids in your no uh, knock raids are a great example. So no, so no knock raids are so the the police get a warrant, uh, which are generally just sort of rubber stamped by magistrate judges or local judges. They say we have an informant who told us that there's a bunch of drugs here, and we want this to be a no knock raid. No knock, you know, generally a warrant in classic law enforcement English. This is, you know, warrant is an old thing. The types of things and, you and see in your 1960s movies, yeah, so right? You come in, you knock on the door, you say, we have a warrant. And then they, they, you know, they say, we have to let us in and let us do what we're looking for. But in some circumstances, you're allowed to ask for a no knock warrant, which is that the situation is either so dangerous that we have to break down the door or we think they're going to destroy evidence. And when it comes to drugs, they can always make this claim that they are going to destroy evidence. And so in many jurisdictions, the the warrants are served as as no-knock warrants almost as a matter of course. Mm. You're supposed to have to sort of prove not only first at the warrant, but then prove that the, that these other considerations are present, the danger to the cops or destruction of evidence. The idea the, is that there's the, a higher bar. Exactly. Right? But they just give them off as you know, give them out as a matter of course. And so then they bust down the door and come in, which endangers many people involved, even including including the cops, because we have many stories in America of the cops coming in, uh, not announcing themselves. They're supposed to they're supposed to announce themselves and then and then break down the door. Uh, they they always say that they announce themselves, but they often don't. 
uh, because they give there's about two seconds before the moment they get up onto the doorstep, the door, the, the, the door, and then when they just beat it down with a battering ram. And if you're it's 4 a.m. in the morning and you're sitting there and you just hear someone outside your house, you might grab your gun. Um, they, you never hear them say police. They knock down the door. They, they put the light on you and you're holding a gun and the next thing you know, you're dead. Or you shoot back and you kill a cop um, and then get prosecuted for that. Uh, so the, this is sort of, again, the necessary corollaries of fighting a, a war. And I think victims- it's sort of trap. I think it's also important to be clear here that although sometimes this is portrayed as these police are going to like a quote crack house or something like that, oftentimes these could be people with their families. It's just a family household on a street, right? It takes very little and there's very little oversight mm-hmm. uh, for, for the level of weaponry that the American police forces in particular assisted by transfers from our, mili- our massive military. Uh, there's extremely little oversight in terms of whether or not they're going to essentially approach this house like it's a house in Baghdad or something during the war, right? Or like with the same level of militaristic involvement, like like they were in Vietnam in the '60s. Um, and often that's just an informant. And there's a huge problem with informants. So again, going back to the fact that the victims of this purported crime are not reporting the purported crime that they then have informants who are people, sometimes almost professional snitches, uh, who get certain leniencies or certain things from the from the police or from prosecutors for informing on someone. Um, and they can lie. They can and often do lie quite often. And there's very little attempt to check that they actually are saying something is true because they, they might be expected to give up so many drug users, you know, drug drug dealers or something in a, in a course of a month. And so there's a famous story out of Georgia recently where where an informant told cops that, that he bought drugs from this apartment where he, he didn't. And after the cops broke down this guy's apartment and thankfully didn't shoot him or his dog, which they often kill the dog, mm-hmm. he was able to go and review his his uh, doorbell camera footage and he did see because the cops he, he was in a cop car the informant just sort of came into the apartment complex stood outside of his door and then went back to the cops and said i bought i bought drugs from that guy he never even rang the doorbell he wasn't home um so they came back with military militaristic force again not quite common unbelievably common there's about about 130 swat raids a day in america uh in the 80s there were about three or four SWAT teams are relatively new. Uh, they kind of came out of LA in the late sixties. And, uh, but so in the eighties, which was the height of crime, pretty much we had a big crime wave that kind of kind of crime increase that started in the late sixties and then kind of peaked from the eighties into the, into the early nineties and started going down and it's still mostly going down today. Uh, 1980 was about the peak crime for violent crime in America. And st- in there, you have still three to four SWAT raids a day. We, we don't have really good data on this, but about three to four SWAT raids a day. And if you think what should SWAT raids be for, it should be for I mean, hostage situations, you know, extremely dangerous situations. Like if you watch the movie SWAT, yes, like exactly. the beginning of the movie, Precisely. <laughs> that's yeah. kind of the stuff you want them to, like actual terrorists going to or bank robbers going to bank. Like, yes. That's a good time to use a SWAT team. And right? I can imagine that there are about three or four, you know, America's pretty big. There's 330 million people, or in 1980, there are probably about 230 million people. I imagine, I imagine that, you know, there in that country that big, there might have been three to four instances throughout where that was necessary. Crime goes down, SWAT raids go up. Um, and about 70% of them are being are just to execute drug 
search warrants. Well, at some point, it must be a matter of we have all these resources, we have all these weapons sometimes transferred directly from the military in certain cases, and we're not using it on these kinds of crime. Well, we could use them for drug raids. Like, that's obviously an effect that's happening, too, here as oh, well within departments. Unquestionably. Um they're the the level of you know the, they have armored personnel carriers many of these police departments and uh, you know you 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 have the argument that the officers should always be kind of as safe as possible which which is the argument they make and it's hard to rhetorically counter that uh, because it's like you know I'm never going to put any of my officers' lives at risk therefore we're going to roll up on this house with merely suspected drug drug dealers with a tank essentially uh, in the name of protecting your officers. Well, right. at some point the civil liberties and the safety of, of your citizens and whether or not you want to have this kind of relationship between the police and the citizens. And, and I think everyone around the world has seen how much that has broken down in America right. since Ferguson was the one where it became particularly prominent. Um, the relationship between police, especially in, in racial, uh, racially, racial neighborhoods like uh, concentrated neighborhoods in Chicago, Baltimore, uh, it's become absolutely unbelievable. And I think overall, the biggest, the biggest factor in it is the drug war. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's one of these things to imagine this world. We've taken, we've taken the drug war, and we've. You know, it's we've become we've come to terms with it. We've seen it for so all of our lives in some way or another. But imagine if the police just solved crimes. It's like it's like it's like this weird. Oh, that's libertopia. Like <laughs> it's like crazy. That's crazy it's, talk, it's, man. It's, it's funny that. But ima- yeah, we're at that if, point. Right? Imagine like, if they imagine if that was imagine you know, the murder clearance rate in Baltimore. This is this is how many murders that they're that they actually have arrest for is in the low thirty percent, um, which is just shockingly low overall in the whole country. The murder clearance rate is about sixty percent. Um, in Germany, by comparison, it's it's in the in the upper nineties. Um, now, of course, you can, there's a lot of differences we can talk about right between Germany and America, but but it's just you have cops been incentive to fight the drug war that in many ways is easier and for reasons I discussed previously if they can take money or take assets and get a margarita machine for it uh, is much more lucrative for them uh, while the the unsolved murderers and burglaries and robberies are just sort of stacking up and you know and it's not just the drug war but again imagine this world where where people who went to the police, because they were actually victims of the crime of a crime, and they did not expect the police to kind of I'm trying to think of the right like lean on them in this way that you get from the police that you know oh you might be you know I might find you with something you I know you're doing something you know that you right. never like really feel com- it doesn't even you have to be a drug user uh, but you know the vast majority of Americans have tried marijuana or something you know so so. You know, and then so the cops, the, the, almost everyone could be a criminal. You might be a drug user, and so they're, they're, they're not approaching the serving the people in the same way because everyone might be a. Well, there's a the difference between peace officers and law enforcement conceptually, in that exactly way, right. And I think it's I think it's interesting what you're saying, especially since that I think one of the problems is that I'll, the average person has this perception in their head that yes, there's a drug war, but it's still kind of connected to that idea of peace officer like that you're describing. I think a lot of people, especially people relatively, you know, well-off, middle-class and suburbs, whatever, they're not getting raids on their street. They think, well, this is kind of connected to police work, right? Obviously, somebody at some point called, said there was a crack house on the end of the street. Like, they're doing their job. It's just an extension of it. But the drug war itself is really this 
its own kind of beast, right? With multiple factors we've been talking about and multiple reasons for being different types of tactics are employed. I think a lot of people don't really understand how big that beast is and how it really is a separate thing. Well, I think if you um, if you look at rates of drug use uh, and racial and racial rates of drug use, they're not wildly different between whites and, and African-Americans, for example. And it's likely to be true that if you went to Georgetown, so in there's a very nice, well-to-do neighborhood called Georgetown in Washington, D.C., uh, extremely expensive, and uh, there's not even a, a metro stop there. Uh, from what I've heard, partially because they didn't want one, because it would it keep the riffraff out. You, know, you have to you have to really kind of try to go to Georgetown, versus Anacostia, which is which is a predominantly African American neighborhood, uh, which is features some of the worst neighborhoods in Washington D.C. But if you took if you went if you took the policing of Anacostia and brought it to Georgetown. And you said, go kick down some doors, get get some warrants, shake down people on the street, uh, you know, because they looked they looked a little bit suspicious. Uh, you're probably going to find as many drugs in Georgetown oh, yeah. as you would in Anacostia. And if you did that, uh, that would be one of the quickest ways you could end the drug war, actually, because suddenly the people in power and white people right. would be just it was like this is intolerable. I cannot believe this is happening. I mean, or or any college campus in the United States, right? Right. Privileged, privileged environment. I mean, you know, depending on where you're talking about, like, but like often mo- mostly white. Um, and, you know, that's a place where everyone knows there's drugs everywhere. Right. Just as much as they know that there's drugs everywhere in Anacostia or South Central LA or Baltimore. Go bring the cops there, shake it down for a good solid week. And, and let's see how much the parents of these kids are, are clamoring for ending this, this drug war, which all it's going to do, I mean, it's a little bit innocent drug. It's an innocent drug use. You know, what would they say? Oh, my 19-year-old kid got caught with marijuana or cocaine. It's just an innocent drug use. What's the big deal? You're not going to ruin this kid's life. You're not going to ruin his life forever just because he was doing a little bit of drugs in college. It's not a big deal, right? Right. Uh, but yeah, but we do that all the time. Exactly, exactly. I mean, uh, this was a point that um, – Barack Obama, you know, kind of flippantly talked about using drugs uh, when he when he was a kid, and like they yes, and, 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 and in Pinjolet, I think it was who went off is like this is absolutely disgusting. Like, like you you're, you joke about how, of course, everyone used some drugs in this, but like you you went to Harvard, you you lived in a relatively privileged environment. I mean, there are there are kids, your government to this day, mostly state governments, but the, but who are getting their lives destroyed because of what you're you're joking about as a youthful you know indiscretion. And I, and I think, as you were sort of saying before, if the idea of the drug wars were getting rid of all drugs, no matter who it is, there's a bit of a distribution problem in terms of policing for that at this point. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah if our, that's the goals, right? Yeah. And in and, and these inner cities, they they again, if they were actually saying, uh, we have the cops, we call the cops because you got robbed and they help out and their their biggest job is to solve and prevent crimes that are actual crimes it would be an astounding change right in in american life and something that we, that we have become essentially you know a little bit a little bit just blasé about because it's so common we all we watch the wire or something and well that's how it is like 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 it's necessary oh, well, cops has also been a good vehicle for all instilling Absolutely. in people's heads too right yeah, that yeah. show just, yeah. oh that's what they do look at that exactly um and i pulled a, a fact from your article again i'll mention it you guys can find it online locked up and loaded you said uh, this is about the disproportionate effect of, of the drug war on racial minorities, ultimately. He said, the Department of Justice's investigation of the Ferguson Police Department found that blacks were two times more likely 
than whites to be searched during a traffic stop, but were 26% less likely to be found with contraband. Yeah. And, you know, it's hard to say what the total sampling is on any of these. And uh, I do, of course, yeah. I do suggest for anyone who's as geeky about this stuff as I have, both, both the DOJ's report on Ferguson and the DOJ's uh, report on Baltimore is just simply shocking and demonstrates how, how police have become really not. I mean, there are, most cops are good cops. Actually, the eighty twenty rule applies here too. Most cops are good cops. Eighty uh, percent of cops are not a problem. Twenty percent, you know, most of the time these complaints, but entire departments have been infected by various types of racially tinged. And then with the drug war bringing on top of it, their ability to profit off the drug war, their ability to sort of solve crimes. Do it. It's it's just it's just absolutely. It's something no one should accept, yeah. no matter what color you are. But but if you're African-American, you have the right to be pissed off. Right. And it's interesting to know a lot of people say a few bad apples and stop their sentence. I think I recall the full expression being something along the lines of the few bad apples spoil the bunch. Yes. That's the latter half that often people that are defenders of this type of stuff forget to add on at the end. And as you said, we can see how certain types of conduct and, and – as you said, it can infect an entire department. Yeah, and you know, it's again the the racial element, the dehumanization aspects that we discussed previously. They are all part of this uh, in terms of how how they treat these people, and and it's true for for lower class whites too. Um, and and again, what we're not doing here is it, it almost seems like as a necessary part of fighting the drug war because it's so inhuman. Because it's so evil. I mean, I would say it is the most evil thing the federal U.S. federal government has done, except for slavery. Um, but is that it, the dehumanization is necessary because you couldn't ask these people to do to do to do it otherwise. It's just like war. It's traditional in yeah. traditional war. You have to get American GIs to not consider Vietnamese human beings because you're asking them to do something. That that under any circumstances, killing another human being mm-hmm. is not okay. So you need to you need to come in and be like they're not Vietnamese, they're Charlie, they're a Gook, right? And if they're German, they're they're Hans, or you know they're a Kraut or whatever. You ha- getting getting soldiers to dehumanize their enemy mm-hmm. is an almost essential part of war to ask people what they do. And I think the exact same thing is true in the drug war. You know, in some sort of dictatorship, a fascist or communist one, the government just wakes up one day and say these people are bad. Everyone goes and does this in a relatively free society in order to get the public to think like that as well. There's a lot being thrown at you every day, right? Like as you're talking, I'm thinking, for instance, flip on a TV show, as you said, if let's say whatever, even a sitcom or like one of those long running HBO shows that's serious, let's look at the way alcohol is treated. As you said, maybe at the end of the episode, our protagonist has a, uh, a you know, a revelation. They're crying. They're at their 12 steps meeting. They're getting over their addiction, right? Where what's the heroin, cocaine, or sometimes even marijuana user portrayed as, right? Every single time you turn on the TV or something for me, mainstream media broadly, that's the kind of way that not only the police think of it, but as you're saying before, the public think of it as well. So I think in many ways, the dehumanization uh, point is, is very valid. And, and then it's attacks from all angles. And again, it's not a conscious thing. It's not that there's TV producers sitting around going, ha ha ha. But this is the way the thought process rolls out, I find at least. It's something that we've seen. There's a little bit of alteration happening with the current opioid crisis in America, because it's understood that it's a white problem predominantly the the state's hardest hit are ohio and new hampshire for example Mm. our previous crack epidemic was was very focused on imagery and racially charged imagery in the inner cities right the the idea of 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 well i mean it's crack whore things like this like with like like with these kind of turned elements and then like um 
welfare queens and all this stuff was put together with a racially element that you would have crack babies and like in the African American. And so we went after the crack epidemic. I'm putting that in scare quotes because it's the, the, all that story has been overblown, but with, with pure law force, like law enforcement force. Well, it's the updated version of the, the blacks on cocaine thing, right? Yes. It was end up being, that's what people's perception of was crack. It's like, well, you would have heard with crack, you would have heard going back to the three prongs, the drug war perception of the drug, you would have heard. And, and there are many quotes on this, that crack was malevolently addictive. This, this idea of one time addiction or one time chemical dependence, some people might having a problem when I say it, addict, by the way, it is a very charged issue what an addict is. But one-time chemical dependence um, it was very prominent with crack. Uh, there were Time Magazine stories that, you know, this is not cocaine. This is this is a totally different thing. We do this once and you could be a slave for life. And then, of course, who was doing it? That's not true, by the way, about crack. Who was doing it? Oh, well, African-Americans in the inner city. So dehumanize them, go after them with absolute force. Interestingly, with the opioid crisis, um, I think we're seeing in terms of the dehumanization, there's this white America. So there's there's an attempt to say that to focus on whether or not they became drug users because of medical use. So there's a huge going after doctors and and producers of slow release opiates in particular, which is wrong, by the way. It's extremely wrong, this narrative that has developed that the majority of these people came to habitual use via some prescription because they broke their leg or something. It's mm -hmm. incredibly wrong. Um, but it's kind of forgives a little bit. This is a long history in the in the drug war too. Where you moralize how someone became a habitual user of a drug. Uh, if they if they got there via medical use, then it's less bad than if they were going to speakeasies and jump joints and 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 doing sort of automatically immoral activity, and then they became addicts for that for that reason. Um, so this this long standing thing, but but there's an understanding and there's a little bit more care, I think, being applied or at least on the surface to the opioid crisis in America. There's a little bit more we need to care for addicts rather than rather than just go after it with the with the blunt force of of imprisonment and strict penalties and all this stuff too. And I would argue that part of that is because it's perceived as a white white phenomenon. Right. And I'm just tie that up with a quote I'm pulling from your article again. You said, incarcerating drug users is not only inhumane, it's silly. You go on to say later, drug addiction is defined as the compulsive use of substance of a substance despite negative consequences. So if that's what uh, drug addiction is defined as, uh, you're basically saying that, once again, look at how alcohol is treated differently than drugs. Uh, we've talked a lot about law enforcement, but just incarceration specifically at this point is, as you said at the beginning, throwing people in cages, the solution to this. If you truly believe Anyone listening, I'm talking the royal you uh, that, you know, the drug war or anything uh, that you can do to get rid of drugs is important and it's something that society should be doing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You still have to ask yourself at the end of the day, is throwing people in cages helping that heroin addict? Is, is it helping that cocaine? Whatever it may be. And I think that's very important as well. The the whole incarceration aspect of it as much as the law. Well, actually, aspect. I mean, and on that point, the definition of, of addiction is compulsive use despite negative consequences. So if going to prison made you not use it, then you would actually define addiction out of like would just you know, you know they're not addicted. Right. Uh, right. Because like that was one of the, that's one of the negative consequences. So so that it's this is part of the mini problem. Now we're starting to have a better idea of what addiction is. And that's extremely right. important. It's it's it it's been this whole sort of cycle. And I think it's important when you think about addiction, the the concept of this goes back to the concept of the drug user. It's always true on this question of you know what causes 
different treatment of heroin versus alcohol. Um, so you had the racially tinged elements of the 20s and 30s, right? But 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 then that kind of changed as we got away from less ostensibly racist points, like that were just obviously racist. Like you started seeing that the perception of the drug user became based on what you thought addiction meant. Um, so was it, it was it a moral failing? Okay, and then we change it to a disease. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and there's a now there's been a big pushback on the disease model of addiction because it removes agency from the user. So if you tell if you tell addicts uh, this was part of your genes, it was it, it was inevitable. Like you kind of give them this thing. It's you're, you're not you're not morally problematic. You have a disease. Well, then it's very hard to be like you need to take charge of your life and fix this. Well, if you have the disease and the, you know your father was an alcoholic, you have yes. the disease. It all, your addiction ultimately, on the other hand, becomes a self fulfilling prophecy as well, yes. right? Like, oh, you're doomed to be an addict, but we're going to help you if you remove agency from it. If, exactly. If you say this is a thing that happened to you, not a thing you did. Exactly. And and now what we're seeing, you know, the best way of thinking about of trying to cover, like overcome addiction is to think about it as essentially a learning disorder. And I don't mean learning in the like going to school sense, right, right. but the way your brain responds to feedback effects. Because the, the drug is not the primary cause of, of chemical dependence addiction. Let's call it addiction being that sort of psychological element. It's important. It's an important fact, but we've seen people can be addicted to a lot of things. And like one of the things that sometimes people become addicted to is in the form of OCD, like hand washing, right, <clears throat> or or turning on and off lights. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, that develops because essentially you you start developing a pattern of behavior for the purpose of coping with anxiety, usually. Mm-hmm. And and after you do it, it makes you feel less anxious. And then the feedback loop develops in your brain that you keep having to do it. So then you have to wash your hands ten times a day or do whatever before before you you know, can leave the house or something. It would be insane to fix OCD by banning like sinks and hand washing or like light. That would be, it would be absolutely nuts. All right. Or, or declare to a war in, on OCD. <laughs> or yeah. Or to put them in prison. Like that would right. just be nuts. If I don't understand like, well, what thing in your life made you say your anxiety developed a point? And I ask you to think every listener to think about a thing in your life mm-hmm. that you do to, to, uh, Somewhat assuage anxiety in some way, um, like, f- like uh, for me. So I have to sleep with white noise. Actually, I work yeah, with it a lot. I, I do that as well, actually. So right, and and what I mean, it's some some of it just because I can hear things and it keeps me awake. But eventually, I also work sometimes with white noise, and it ends up doing something that's like it just calms me down, mm-hmm. right? So or something where you know just something you do, and now imagine that becoming consistent or trying to just say stop doing that thing that that is treating your some sort of source of anxiety. I don't even want to discomfort even right like not even anxiety like some level of discomfort. Yeah, it's right? important for everyone listening to us remember that like we're not talking about people with an anxiety disorder. Everyone yeah. has anxiety elements just, to some just, degree. Just some and that's what we're talking uncomfortable about. and you're discomfort and you and you yeah. do something like think about that thing in your life. Right. And then think about doing it so many times that it becomes a habit. That's how habits become. And it's very, very hard without getting more anxiety to stop doing that thing, right? right? Now, imagine that thing is is heroin. When you for the first time you do heroin, it's not because you're addicted to it, right? And then you say, and, and we have an extremely high level of adverse childhood experiences, meaning meaning some sort of abuse or something like this connected to drug use, where you you have to identify that thing in, in, in your life that was that was causing anxiety in sometimes like maybe extreme forms of it that, that heroin was the solution and the fact that it became it became just what you do all the time or you feel super un- uncomfortable and anxious. Right. 
And and this, and again, how many times do you have to take the drug to become an addict? It's just quite a few. It's not it's not the drug. If that were a case, well, you could go to Switzerland right now, and break your femur skiing. Yeah. And he went to the hospital. They would give you heroin. They would give you pure diacetylmorphine heroin for your painkiller because that's legal to give in Switzerland. It's not legal in the United States. You get a lot of the United States. Um, they give you pure heroin, and you would and you would and maybe for a week you'd get pure heroin. And you'd walk out of the the, the uh, hospital and or maybe wheel out if you broke your femur, right? <laughs> and or hop or hop, <laughs> and you but you would not be an addict. Mm-hmm. You might have some level of chemical dependence, but you would not be an addict. We have no concern that giving them heroin for pain like this is addict. What we're concerned with is if you're going and accessing heroin for the purposes of assuaging anxiety or other sort of sort of discomfort things and doing that on a regular basis. That's what can lead you to be an addict. And it's it's really as you as you were alluding to before. It's a, you can really only understand this stuff in the broader context of what is really ultimately mental health. Yes. If if you don't understand that context, then you're really not able to understand drug addiction. It's not a separate thing completely. This is where we get into some trouble Precisely. With, with understanding drug addiction. And, and, and going back to the theme of this whole thing, thinking about drug use this way, compulsory drug use, addiction, uh, thinking about how that works for different types of drugs and understanding that this is a problem for some people uh, who use heroin and not a problem for other people who use heroin mm-hmm. and treating all these people like human beings is the only moral, I mean, obviously only moral way, but effective way of, of, of addressing drug use in society. I pulled a quote again from your article there. It was a uh, Dr. Henry William Smith wrote of the Harrison Narcotics Tax Act. And I want you to comment on maybe how the more things change, the more they stay the same. This was in 1938. He said, the law's only effects were to raise up an army of dope smugglers and peddlers to increase the company of drug addicts, to change thousands of self-supporting law-abiding citizens into outcast derelicts and petty criminals, to crowd court calendars and jam the corridors of prisons, to inaugurate an era of persecution of sick people, and to impose on the country a tax burden of at least a billion dollars a year. Now, I know one figure in there that's definitely a lot higher now, but a lot, it sounds like a lot of that hasn't changed since 1938. Yeah, and the, and the name of that book is Drug Addicts or Human Beings, uh, written in 1938 by a guy who was in, entirely against drug use. He really did not like drug use, but he thought it was absolutely insane what this law and subsequent laws did to drug users, how it, how it created them dope peddlers, how it created problematic drug situations. He thought it was absolutely crazy, and it, it still is. Final thing we do on every episode, we let the guest have the last word, a chance to tie everything up. We've talked about a lot. Let's bring it full circle. You can put a finer point on our exploration of the question today. What do you hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to here on how the drug war failed? The drugs cause a lot of problems in society. And if you listen to this whole thing and you're thinking, okay, well, what about these things? I, we can talk. There are Many things. They're, they're, drug addiction, properly understood, compulsive drug use, you could tear apart families. You might have seen someone in your life this happened to. Yeah. As at any point, was was criminal justice penalties the right solution to this? And for every single person you can point to who drugs tore apart their life in some way and tore apart their families' lives, I can point to an, probably five people who the drug war in some way, and many people who were only tangentially involved with it, say vi- gun violence in streets, you know, drive-by shootings, things like this, has torn apart just as many lives. Uh, none of this is necessary. Uh, we, can, we, can, we can try to assuage the problem of drug use. We can try and mitigate the problems of drug use in humane ways, and in the course, actually do something quite amazing for criminal justice, for helping people solve addiction problems, for just making people uh, better human beings. 
Trevor Burris, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task today. Thanks for having me. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.